Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. I started teaching college maybe um, 10 years ago and taught for a while because um, I was diagnosed with ocular melanoma, interestingly enough, as a trauma therapist um, and didn't think that I was going to be able to treat clients while I was going through my own stuff. So I decided to take a break from being a therapist, taught college for a while. I got to teach psychology, which was really fun. And now I am back in the field and I've been, again, specializing in trauma and really, really enjoy my work. And I, I do have to say that the work that I did as a greener, younger therapist is very, very different than how I approach my work now. And I think um, part of that was because of my own trauma um, and my own resilience. I saw things completely different. So I think previous to my own emotional trauma, I took more of a Western medicine approach to treatment, which is focus on the diagnosis and the symptoms. So I focused quite a bit on post-traumatic stress and okay, let's give you that diagnosis because you know, there's, and this is total sarcasm because there's no harm in that in labeling you with that huge, huge diagnosis. Um, And after we give you that label, we're just going to pick out your symptoms and we're just going to make them better as quick as we can. So I was very much into, all right, let's get in, let's get out, get your symptoms taken care of, whatever that is, and move on with life. Um, okay, now since my own my own diagnosis, and I like to kind of incorporate my own story into um, trainings that I do or these um, presentations, because I really found that I have changed so much in my perspective and in the way that I see things. And um, I used to be very, very, very optimistic. And I kind of thought of myself when I was diagnosed as the poster child of resilience. And um, I was diagnosed and I thought, okay, bucket list. What is it that I want to do? What is it that's going to fulfill me? How am I going to leave some sort of legacy? And how am I going to move through this with grace and beauty and Um, yeah, I did not, I did not move through it with grace and beauty. And part of that, I'm going to stop this share for a minute. And part of that was because you're not supposed to. So there's a big grieving process in all of this. And the grieving process is what I didn't do. So I was diagnosed and I was like, you know what? All right. What do you do when you have terrible stress in your life? well, let's just tack one more thing on to what you're doing. So I was like, all right, I've always wanted to get a PhD. So I'm going to go get a PhD. Um, And I got very busy with school and my research. And um, we had just bought a new home, me and my now ex-husband. We had just bought a home and I was, I had been feeling pretty content about things. 
And so I was working very hard on my research and I was being what I thought was a great mom. And I was going around talking about resilience and, and um, dealing with cancer. And I was being very, very optimistic because again, I thought that the way that you're supposed to deal with this is to just kind of be a vision of strength and grace. And about three years later, my life turned into an absolute dumpster fire. And that was because I did not go through the grieving process because I was still kind of, my mindset was around this Western medicine and all right, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and set some goals and continue to live and, you know, don't feel bad for yourself. Stay very optimistic. And that was a, that was a really big mistake on my part because part of the grieving process, well, a lot of the grieving process is just feeling awful and it's being mad at the world and it's sloppy and it's messy. So when I talk to my clients now, I like to normalize that you, you can't just skip the grief part and you can't skip doing that really deep work and figuring out what's important because it's going to catch up with you. So in the meantime, you know, I've been doing everything right and raising money and with my family and doing little speaking gigs and was just feeling super good about um, <laughs> how I was doing things. And then it just blew up in my face and I had a complete breakdown, which is not really a good look for a trauma therapist and for someone who's supposed to be resilient. Um, and I remember when I was having this mental breakdown, um, I was talking to my little sister and I was saying, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be like this really strong person who got through this very challenging event and did it with so much grace and dignity. And here I am, um, I'm separated from my husband. I'm, I moved into my older brother's basement, which at the age of 40 something is not also not a very good look. Um, and I'm just depressed. I think I have three different therapists. I'm trying to figure things out because I hadn't figured them out earlier. And my sister said, <laughs> there. And my sister goes, well, you know what? This is part of your story. This doesn't mean that you failed. This is part of the story of resilience. And I was, okay. And here's another thing. I also, this is really, really not a good look. So as many of you know, when you, um, when you are going through something very traumatic, sometimes you revert back to some really bad coping mechanisms. So after having not smoked for many, many years, um, somewhere in there, I decided that I'd start smoking again. And with cancer, again, not a very good look. So it was really, really bad. I was smoking a cigarette, just feeling terrible for myself um, and just feeling like I was an absolute disaster. I took a break from my PhD program in order to have, I don't know what number mental crisis that was. Um, and it was my little sister who said, okay, this is just part of your story. And so I went through this really rough, terrible time and a separation and lost friends. People were angry with me. I was angry with myself. Um, I wasn't super happy with where I was going in my career. I wasn't super happy about where I was teaching. And so from there, I just decided I'm going to be completely honest about what this whole resilience thing looks like. So it doesn't look like this, you know, easy breezy, bounce back, do everything you've ever wanted to do, leave this beautiful legacy, have a perfectly written will. Um, it's ugly. 
And it is, what does that say? Toxic positivity. Yes, toxic positivity. Exactly. I just lost one of my earbuds. Um, it does not look good. And unless you're screwing up and doing stupid things, I mean, hopefully not life-changing stupid things, but um, grieving is not supposed to be this, this beautiful process. It's, I don't know where my other earbud went. Oh, it went across the room. Hold on a second. Speaking of messy and sloppy. Um, so what I, what I decided to do is just be very real about what this whole thing looked like because I don't want people to think, and I certainly don't want my clients to think or my students to think, and when I do my research, I don't want anybody to think that there's a particular way that you're supposed to get through this because you are going to fall apart and you are going to be a mess. And if you're really examining your life and living your best life, you're going to make some changes. And there are going to be, especially if you're sort of a people pleaser like I am, um, you're going to have people angry and upset with you and questioning you. And um, I definitely experienced a lot of that, but I'm sort of in this pursuit of living my best life and figuring out what my best skills are and how I can help people. And I thought that just being brutally honest about this whole thing um, was the best idea. So my idea of resilience now is going through a grieving process and having your support system with you and they're not always going to be happy with you. And I also found that when you're truly grieving, um, a lot of anger comes out and sometimes you push your support system away and your support system can be angry with you. And my biggest support system is my family. And I pissed them off many, many times through this. Um, but your support system will also understand that this is a really difficult diagnosis and it's a scary process. And this is not like other cancers where at some point you hit remission and you can stop worrying. So your support system hopefully will show some grace around all the times that you mess up and the different decisions that you make um, because not everybody has their mortality thrown out in front of them. So grief is very, very, very important. And um, when I started, when I, and this was a few years ago, you'll be happy to know, or I'm, ha I'm happy to know that um, with the help of my support system, I got back on my feet again. I got back into my PhD program. Um, I'm working on my dissertation. So right now I'm actually shamelessly recruiting participants to help me with my research and to be part of my research. Um, and I'm back being a trauma therapist. And I'm a really good therapist because of the shit that I went through. Um, so usually the question that I ask whoever is in charge of the conference, the speaking stuff is who's my audience and how often can I swear? And am I allowed to drop an F-bomb? And usually they say, no, you cannot. And then I do it anyways, because um, with part of my being true and authentic and real about tragedy and trauma, it is permission granted. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful and it's ugly. And I have been at a place where I'm like, cancer is a gift. And then I've been like, cancer is fucking terrible. It ravaged my family. I remember my mom being in the fetal position when I was going through treatment. She was so traumatized. My sister turned into like nurse mode to take care of me. My brother very graciously opened his home while I was having a nervous breakdown. So it is not, it's not a, a beautiful process all of the time, but hopefully you have people who can help you through that grieving process. And then you get back on your feet. And then you're actually, because you went through this grieving process, 
you're a better person and you're a wiser person than you were previously. So I am not that whole toxic positivity. Um, cancer was a gift. Sometimes I feel like that, honestly, because even though, you know, after I was diagnosed, I lost so much of my vision. I have random panic attacks. I have anxiety. Some amazing things have come from my diagnosis that I know would not have happened had I not been diagnosed. So I always think about um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And if you've ever taken a, oh, if you've ever taken a psychology class, you know, she has those famous, the, the stages of grief and loss. And they're very, very neat. And I think there are what, five or six stages. There's anger and there's depression and there's bargaining. And finally there's acceptance. And when I was grieving, um, I just remember thinking very sarcastically, like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross never had in her stages of grief when people don't understand your diagnosis. And so you drive to the nearest dive bar where the people who've had terrible, horrible lives are gonna be your best friend. You belly up to the bar and you talk to the bartender and the bartender, because he listens to everybody's problems, gives you some sympathy. Um, and then your family doesn't know where you are and they drive around frantically trying to find you. Um, and then they have to take you home. So there was a lot of really not very flattering experiences as I was going through this, but I learned to give myself some grace because this is something that not everybody goes through. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is a very neat stages um, of grief and loss was just, I just remember thinking this is so ridiculous. Let's keep in with Katie, keep it real. <laughs> I, do, I do keep it real, I do. Um, and I, I really did have a terrible time, but I look at my life now and I was forced to, well, I wasn't forced to, I could have kept living as a people pleaser and trying to do what I thought was what was expected of me. And I took a very close look at how I was living and what I was doing and decided that I wanted to, first of all, start living for myself and choosing myself because I had as a therapist um, you know, you do a lot of helping other people and focusing on others, um, you know, and I was kind of that person who was the, was kind of the peacemaker or um, helped people with conflict whenever our family had conflict, um, and I went from that to I just, I'm going to choose me because I, I really want to live, and so I made a couple of very big decisions to live my best life, doing as little damage to others as I could. And um, had I not had that diagnosis, I wouldn't be here right now. So I guess when we talk about the gift of cancer, that is one of the gifts. But on the other hand, um, there's some terrible things that come with cancer. And resilience is all about taking those terrible things head on. And there's no certain way, no particular way to deal with them. There's not any neat steps. Um, there's not any particular form of therapy that's going to work. There's not, you know, I don't necessarily, everybody's different. And um, I know that exercise and diet is very important, but I'm not an exerciser and I'm not into diet. And um, I like to drink my red wine and I like to have fun. And, you know, I still try to be sort of healthy, but I knew that. For, in order for me to stay healthy and to fight this, 
that I was going to just, I was, I needed to be my authentic real self. And I needed to start taking care of myself emotionally. And I needed to manage my stress and have more fun events in my life and be with people who I wanted to be with, not that I had to be with. And um, one, I, I remember I was part of a support group, an ocular melanoma support group. And I tell this story a lot because it really is it's one of the things that I remember very clearly. I'm just laughing, being not fighting. Yes, I did not follow any of the rules, the, the very specific cancer rules. Eat this certain diet. Don't eat this stuff. Don't do this. Make sure you're doing that. Um, I didn't pay attention to any of that. I was like, all right, what, what's important to me? And what do I need to do just to be happy and to thrive? And it's working. I don't know. I'm not doing anything healthy. I'm not following all the guidelines, but I'm doing what's good for me, which is working in a field that I love, treating my clients in a way that I think is effective, um, doing the research that I think is needed, and living, living the life that I want, not that's expected of me. So... This whole, the grieving process, the healing process, figuring out life is so different for everybody. And I think as human beings, and I've learned this as a long time therapist, um, we like to make order and sense of things. And so we use a lot of pigeonholes and we like to say, okay, this is the right way to do things. This is the wrong way to do things. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. As you're going through trauma, there's five steps you go through. And there is no order and there is no logic to it because if we were looking, and I know that Eve talked about this too, if we're looking at who survives and who doesn't survive, um, there's, there's no certain recipe or strategy to, to follow. You know, I, when I was first diagnosed, I was um, a couple of people in the ocular melanoma community uh, were going through some of the clinical trials and I decided to opt out of them. Um, I didn't start going to the gym and exercising more. I didn't start eating more arugula or kale. I hate that stuff. Um, if anything, I started having more fun and living more purposefully and living in a way that I knew was best for me, which did not involve arugula or salads or, um, you know, three hour workouts at the gym. I hate that stuff. And I still do. And I'm not saying you should not, you shouldn't be healthy and, and exercise. I'm just saying everybody's different. And if you really do the hard work and listen to what it is that you need, <laughs> listen, listen to what it is that, that you really need, you'll, you're going to be a lot better. I don't, and there's no rhyme or reason or who gets to live and who dies from this disease. There's no, there's not rhyme or reason to it. Um, if I went by the statistics and my lifestyle, I should have been dead years ago. Like I, sometimes I even have survivor's guilt, which is another thing. Um, I did not do all the things, the right things. I didn't do the clinical trials. I didn't go to the gym. I don't eat all the right foods. My little sister is constantly um, trying to get me to eat broccoli and I hate broccoli. I don't think I've had broccoli or a vegetable in maybe two months. So again, I am not I'm sorry, I'm cracking up at the comments. So um, I try every now and again, I try to eat something healthy, but basically right now I'm just doing what I love. I'm with my partner who has chosen um, life and she wants to thrive with me and she um, is extremely positive. And I have found that when you have a partner in life, 
and you're going through something like this, you have to be with someone who wants you to live and wants you to thrive because there are a lot of people in this world who want to find a reason to feel bad and to be miserable. So I found that surrounding myself with people who are positive, who are happy, who are going to accept me for who I am has helped me to thrive. And I honestly try to do it with as little damage as possible because this whole, um, you know, focusing on myself as a therapist um, was kind of foreign to me. And sometimes it feels very selfish to just say, I need to do me. I need to pick me first. But I honestly think that's part of the reason that I'm alive today. So this is not a recipe for everybody. Um, you know, I wear my, oh, I, I kind of ventured off from the support group, but the online support group I belong to. Um, I got really, really rebellious. And I was like, I'm, I lost vision in one of my eyes, but I'm still going to wear my stilettos and I'm still going to drink wine and I'm still going to eat cheesecake. And someone else got on and just blasted me and was like, I'm going to mark it. And was like, that's ridiculous. You're going to hurt yourself. And your lifestyle is stupid. You shouldn't be talking to other people about this. Um, and here I am still alive, wearing my high heels and eating what I want to eat and just being happy. So again, everybody's different. And this is what I've learned as a therapist. Everyone is different and there's a different recipe for everyone. There's different guidelines. So sometimes it's good to stop listening to the experts and listen to your own gut. Um, you know, I think that having a good therapist is crucial. I think everyone should have a good therapist. I might be biased. Um, but I think that sometimes we put too much, too much of, of what we should be doing ourselves on the professionals. We need to trust our own gut. We need to, um, live, live by our instincts. So this is what is called post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to go leave it a legacy, write a bunch of amazing research and die and people are gonna remember my name. Um, Post-traumatic growth is about being authentic and being real. And when you go through something difficult, you don't candy coat it, you go out there and tell the truth about what the experiences is like. So that when people do all of the fumbling around and make a bunch of mistakes and, you know, change who they are and go against their values, they know that, that this is a difficult thing. It's challenging, but it's okay. The way that you're grieving is okay. Love this, Katie. This is so good. I just wanted to just reiterate what you just said really fast. Um, and I don't know if you have any other slides you wanted to pull up, but feel free to pull those up if you want to as well. Um, but we have like the spot where you said, stop listening to experts and start listening to your own gut. And I just had the thought that like, I think so often in our society, we grow up with this mentality that we have to look for some authority outside of ourselves. And I think learning to trust ourselves as our own authority and to do what Eve said in our first session, um, <laughs> to do what Eve said in our first session, like of really just getting in the driver's seat and having that mentality of, of making meaning in some capacity of your diagnosis so that it no longer is this victimizing thing. Um, I think that there's so much power in kind of taking that authority back so that you do have the ability to hear what your gut is telling you you need and to listen to it despite all of the external voices and all of the you know external voices of authority saying, no, 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 that's, that's wrong. Like, 
it's really just learning to trust yourself. Um, and I think that that's, that's definitely, uh, something that, that comes with time, but it's so worth it. Yes, absolutely. Well, and speaking of slides right now, my gut is telling me not to show slides because, you know, (laughs) I'd rather share ridiculous experiences. And I think when I'm talking about resilience, perhaps the most important thing right now, and I didn't know if I was going to tell this story because it's another ridiculous story, but it's a story of my own resilience that did not necessarily come Mm -hmm. from, I'm getting a PhD after a cancer diagnosis, and I'm a trauma therapist, and I do all these speaking gigs and um, all of where I, where I found my resilience was, and my family's on here so they can laugh about this too. Uh, we, my family, my sister's family, and a couple of other families during COVID, we um, took a drive up in the mountains just to get away from home. And we were doing our, our um, social separation or whatever. So we thought we'd take a lovely, a lovely drive into the mountains. We ended up getting stuck in the mountains and we couldn't because the snow had kind of turned into this slush we all had four wheel drive we were all prepared but we all got stuck we had to stay um overnight with our children in our vehicles and it was a very scary experience but me and my little sister decided that we were going to um hike out of the mountains because our cell phones did not work so we were going to hike out of the mountains which by the way was like a 10 mile hike and we were going to go get help Yes. So me and my younger sister, the husbands did not go. Okay. Now I'm sure that my brother-in-law would say that's because he had a busted up knee or something, but of everybody that was there. And one of them was like an army ranger specialist or whatever. It was determined that me and my little sister were the most likely to get to the top and, and get someone to rescue and help us. So we're in this mountain, we're trying to get cell phones, cell phone reception. And we start, we start our journey and um, I think like a quarter mile into our 10 mile hike out of the mountains, we came across a deer leg that had been torn, like a torn off deer leg and a big pile of cougar. I don't know what it was. And so we were like, all right, let's do this. This is going to be fun. Don't think about all of the wild animals that are out right now. So it was interesting because I think that both of us had this, you just do it when you have to do something, you just do it. You don't think about it. You just know that you have to get it done. And so we hiked up the mountains. Okay, now I want to show you a picture. And it took a lot of courage for me to show you this picture, to, to even think about showing this picture because it's so horrible. But this is this is my story of resilience. So we got to, I don't know, we were maybe mile eight and a half up the mountains. And my little sister, I'm pretty sure, had full-on hypothermia. And I was starting to get there. And we were both <laughs> freezing cold. And we were fairly certain, I'm laughing about this, but it really was pretty scary. Uh, we were fairly certain we were going to die. And so I asked my little sister to take her phone out. And I was like, all right, you're going to need to take my last picture because this is going to be my final picture before I die. This is how people are going to remember me. And um, I'll take you take one of me and I'll take one of you. And this will be so people have this final last memory of us. And then we got into an enormous fight because she took a picture of me and it was really horrible. And I was like, Lena, take a better picture of me. And she's like, we're going to die. I'm not going to take another picture of you. So we're up on the top of this mountain arguing about taking a different picture because I look horrible in this picture. And it was when I look back at it, I think about that. And it was kind of hilarious and it was kind of stupid and it was totally me. But I'm going to share this picture because this is the picture of resilience and it's pretty horrifying, but it's also really funny. So here's the picture of... (laughs) 
There's a picture of me <laughs> on top of the <laughs> my final picture. So hey, you're alive. <laughs> you can see why it took so much courage for me to show this. So um, this was actually right after my diagnosis, and I and I think I was like, you know, if I can get through eye cancer, I can get through anything. But this was the picture that she would not retake because she had terrible hypothermia and her hands were shaking and. And we were literally on the verge of death, but fighting about her taking another picture of me. So this is maybe an hour later, we were rescued by some snowmobilers and um, we did actually, our families were rescued. So that was good. But um, my gut instinct tells me not to pull up slides about uh, post-traumatic growth and different stages, but to show you and all my humiliation and to show you this picture of resilience because um, the two of us out of, I don't know how many, we managed to hike up the mountain and get help. And it was awful. And my sister had hypothermia and I looked like that, which was terrifying and awful for me, but in the end, well, and, and like you said, nothing about this, like you, you wouldn't sit here and go, oh yeah, that experience was a gift. Right. And it's <laughs> no. not, it's, it's not to say that it's not to say that you can't build that mindset, right. That you can't somehow develop or have the thought that like, oh yeah, like the people I've met or, you know, the connections I've made, the living presently, that part is a gift, but the, right. the, it itself, the experience itself, like what Ali said, it's not accepting what happened as a gift. It's accepting that it happened and that the gifts can come to you regardless of the things that have happened. Um, I think that's maybe for me where the line is. It's it's not toxic positivity if I'm looking for the gifts despite the hard things. Um, right. And anyway, but I digress. Well, and I, I think to get to the gifts, you have to do the hard stuff because um like after that day, I was like, I'm such a badass. Like my little oh, sister. Oh, absolutely. This is this is the funny part too. So my little sister, she's an she's a full on Ironmans, like the whole marathon and the swim, and she is like super athlete. And I'm a couch potato who likes to drink wine and watch Netflix. And she got hypothermia before me, so I was the last man standing. My couch potato lazy behind. <laughs> and I was You're like, like, Hey, you know look what? at me! I amazing. did nothing to prepare for this, and I'm still fine. <laughs> So I think, yes, coming from that, you surprise yourself about how capable you are because you get a certain mindset and really difficult, terrible things you get through. And then after you do it, you're like, holy shit, I'm kind of amazing. So yeah. there's my story so, and my sad picture of resilience, which I brought I forward to my own diagnosis too and working with that. So I have a question for you. Um, in the previous session and in really both both the sessions leading up to this and just kind of a recurring theme in the in the community of ocular melanoma patients is this idea of dealing with the recurring fear, right? Whether it's recurring fear because the fear comes up and you have scans every three months or every six months or every year, or the fear of the doctor's appointments because you have some level of residual trauma around the actual appointment itself. And then I think we can also say that there's a lot of people, especially when you're newly diagnosed, that you're afraid your cancer might come back in your eye or, oh, yes. you know, that you're afraid it will come back period, like anywhere else metastatically. Um, so just when you, when you are looking kind of through that lens of, you know, post-traumatic growth while also simultaneously experiencing the stress of fear, mm -hmm. how do you navigate that? And how do you help your clients navigate that from a therapy perspective? Um, I don't. <laughs> Honestly speaking, you how do you navigate fear? You don't. You deal with it head on. You feel all the awful feelings that come with it, 
and you deal with it the best that you can. And like I said, it's different for everybody. Um, I don't know that the fear or the anxiety gets any easier. Like I said, it's been seven years for me and it still scares. You know, you, you live every day with this fear. This is not a cancer that goes into remission. So you don't get a break from it. You don't, you never get a break from it. So there's not a way to get rid of the anxiety. I mean, you can medicate yourself and I'm definitely a fan of medication and therapy, but what do you do? You face it as bravely as you can. Um, and then you move forward in the best way you can. So I have learned how to manage my fear over the years. And that is through the help of my family. So I always have a big entourage of people who come with me to Portland when I get my scans and we go have a good time. We party, we probably drink a little too much. We have a great time. We make a vacation of it. And then I sit in that stupid tube while they do all the pictures and I try my best to fall asleep and enjoy things. But how do you navigate fear? You, I, you, do, you be brave. You be brave as you can and you deal with it. And um, I don't think there's any, any trick to feeling better. You yeah. feel better after you deal with the fear and you do the hard things. And then you come out on the other side being okay and feeling like well, that. I'm trying to remember, I think it was, it was maybe both Eve and Allie both said in the previous sessions that some of the times that we feel the worst is when we resist the feeling that is coming up. Like when we resist the feeling of, okay, just accepting and, and, and accepting by, by accepting, I mean, just, just honoring and validating the fact that you do feel afraid that it's human and normal to feel afraid. Like there is no one in that, no sane person in the world who would not go into any set of our scans, knowing what we know about our diagnosis and would not feel afraid. So just to honor the fact that that's a, that's such a human thing. And then I, I also love what Allie just said in the comments. She said, there's no way to eliminate the fear. It's always there. Sometimes maybe more in the background and sometimes more at the center. Sometimes, you know, clear up in the front and that's the only thing you can see, but it's always there. Like you said. Yeah, it's there. And if you deal with it and you deal with it and you're still alive, then you can go, holy shit, look at what I've done in my life. Oh my gosh. And Eve is my hero. I've like watched her, her documentary and the climbing and the, um, the, and holy shit, like that is, that is living. Like you do things that you're scared of. You get outside of your comfort zone. And this is what I ask of my clients, get out of your comfort zone and look at people as examples. There are so many people in, in our community, you including, absolutely including mm. you who are like, you are my examples of people who are resilient and amazing and keep going. And um, I think having people who you can look up to and who can be examples to you and, you know, you have and Eve has, and there are a number of other people who are alive and some who are no longer with us who have been my examples of how to get through this the best. So always have people, yeah. people have people. Such, such a powerful thing. Yes. Have lots of people. Eve, you're um, badass. I think you're amazing. Yes, there was, Eve had a couple comments. I don't know if you want to read through uh, from Allie's comment down. Uh, let's see, 1047. What's interesting is when, oh, I didn't know that. Um, Allie says when we cry, cortisol is released, which is why we feel somewhat better when we cry. Feeling the feels actually helps. Like on a biological level, it helps. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I love Western medicine. Western medicine did my radiation. I have an eyeball today and no cancer because of it. But too often we're looking at, here's the symptoms. Let's get rid of them too quickly. And we do the same thing in my field. 
So it's not about getting rid of the fear and getting rid of the pain. It's about just getting into it, getting into all the muck and being your most authentic self and then getting out of it at some point and going, I survived this. And I did it with, not by myself, I did it with the help of my amazing family and the people I look up to. And yeah, I've, I'm a big proponent of have a lot of people around and people who will help you thrive. Well, I think this has been fantastic. And Katie, I love that you went with your gut and just kind of told stories. I feel like the stories that you told were so applicable. Um, as we're wrapping up, in the next five minutes, if you guys are in the chat, if you're listening live and you have some questions for Katie, um, have any comments you want to add to the discussion, please feel free to add those to the chat or send those over in Q&A. And with that, Katie, is there anything else you want to say kind of just to kind of wrap up in the next five minutes? Um, I don't think so. I just want to, I'm super happy to be part of this as always. And I love my OM community. They're a second family to me. And I appreciate that you do these seminars that I'm, they are very helpful for a lot of people. And it's very therapeutic for me to talk about my experience too. So it's therapeutic, I believe for this, for me as a speaker. Too. Well, Katie, you're an excellent speaker and uh, you just have so many great insights. And I know that everybody who's listened feels the same. Um, so we're so thankful to have you as a great example uh, in all of the ways that you have shared uh, just navigating this messy that's, I think that's such a good way to put it is that it's just a messy diagnosis. <laughs> There's nothing pretty and clean about it. And, and I think to just add to what you, you said at the beginning, you said, I don't know how you, you always look so, so pretty. It's like, well, <laughs> I don't, I don't, you just happen to see me on the times that maybe I did my hair and my makeup and the 80% of the time in the week. I don't <laughs> because that's too much effort. And, um, but I love that you keep it real. So uh, thank you so much, Katie. Thank you for being here. Let's give her a huge thanks in the chat. Oh, we have a good question. And you know what, Trisha, if you want to hop into our next session, we're going to cover this a little more depth in depth with family members. But Trisha's question is, how can family members, in my case, like the mother of a daughter with OM, like Ellie, uh, how can we live with this ongoing fear? And I know, I think my mom could, could definitely relate to that for sure. But Katie, what would you... What would you suggest there? Um, my family very regularly reminds me that I'm not the only one dealing with this, that it's difficult for them. It's messy for them. Relationships change. Have grace and empathy with your family as well because they love you and they have a lot of fear and feelings and they're going through a lot of what you're going through. So have grace with them and recognize that your relationship is going to change. Things are going to be different. Um, and just expect that things are, are not are going to be stable and the same and be okay with that. But I think, um, just having grace around your family and the fact that they're going through a lot themselves and their journey might be kind of messy and icky and beautiful at times. And yeah, just having patience yeah. with them as well. On and Trisha, just from, from my mom's perspective, at least the times that she shared with me, you know, there's, I think there's a huge desire as a mom, right. And, and maybe not everyone is a mom, but I think that, um, those of us who are that there's, there's a, a huge part of us that just would love as, as mothers, as parents, even we would love to just make sure that our kids don't have to suffer. Right. We have that desire as parents. We almost, we almost have to catch ourselves when we, when we remove those experiences that they have to really feel through something that it's necessary for growth. Um, 
And I know my, my mom has told me multiple times that she just wishes that she could take it, right? That she could have it in my place. And I would never wish this on anyone, let alone my mom. Um, I would never wish it on anyone. But just that mentality of just knowing, knowing that she wishes she could bear the burden. Um, and I think, you know, from, from her to me, the things that have been the most supportive for me and that have maybe helped us carry the fear together have just been really keeping the communication open. Um, I think that's helped a lot. But I also think that we kind of have to remind each other of some of the things that, you know, she's given me advice about completely different circumstances that I have then given back to her and just been like, mom, remember when you told me, you know, feel it once, don't feel it twice. Like if you're, you know, feeling worried about the what if that sometimes those worries, those fears come up about things that haven't happened yet. And I think that goes back to what Allie talked about, about grounding yourself in the facts and what's actually happening in front of you. Um, but but I think that sometimes we worry so much that we almost feel the dread two times instead of just feeling whatever the aftermath is of whatever the scans say, whatever the doctor's appointment says, we feel it twice because we have now kind of choked ourselves with the fear for so long. Um, so just trying to remember that you really don't have to suffer more than once. And that if, it, you know, come what may, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. You can't stop it. Whatever the results of X appointment or X outcome, they're going to happen. You can't stop it. What you can do is feel it when it actually is real instead of feeling it when it's not real. Um, I hope that makes some level of sense. Let's see. What did Eve just say? Oh, I like, yeah, you've just, you've just confirmed or, you know, added to that, that as parents, our job is not to prevent all bad things, but to teach our kids how to cope with the bad things. Um, so I guess with that, we're going to segue over to our next session, which is actually coping with ocular melanoma as an entire family. Um, Katie, thank you again. Thank you for your insights, your stories, your courage, um, and just your, I think authentic resilience is maybe a good word for it. Um, thank you. Thank you for letting me swear too. That's the only way I can communicate. So I appreciate <laughs> no, it. No, <laughs> I loved it. It was best. It was the best. Maybe I can't do that, but I can, I can give permission. Um, anyway. All right, you guys. So if you're listening live, please jump over to session four and we will see you over in the second or the, the final session. Thank you so much for joining us today on the, I believe podcast brought to you by castle biosciences Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.